Truth often divides, but truth always clarifies. Truth can't cohabit with air. Light and darkness can't sleep in the same bed because darkness conceals, but light reveals the truth. Welcome to Man of Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're beginning to move into the uh, second section of Ephesians, uh, which is the practical application side. Uh, The German philosopher Schopenhauer compared the human race to a bunch of porcupines. Huddling together on a cold winter night, he said, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we poke each other with our quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, eventually we begin to drift apart and wander out on our own and freeze to death in our loneliness. Fortunately, Jesus Christ gives us an alternative for the pokes we receive. It's called forgiveness. That way we get to stay together, stay warm, and stay alive. So today we're going to shift gears and move into the last half of the book of Ephesians, the last three chapters. The first three chapters of Ephesians are about doctrines and principles. Uh, They are what you believe. The second three chapters are about duties and practices. They're about how you behave. What you believe will always determine how you behave. So if you want to see what someone believes, look at how they behave and you'll see their belief system in action. So in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul discusses our wealth, our position in Christ. In the last three chapters, he talks about our walk, our practices. The first three chapters are about what God has done. The last three chapters are about what we must be and do. The first three chapters, Paul talks about what God's plan is to bring all things together under Christ and establish his body, his church here on earth. The last three chapters, Paul delineates how Christians should actually live to make that plan a reality. So chapters one through three talk about our spiritual birth and chapters four through six to talk about our spiritual life. You know, at this church and specifically in man, a life together is one of our motives, one of our mottos. And yet, as most of us know, especially those of you who live with people, living with people is sometimes not easy because they are not like us. The plain truth is most people don't see the world the way we see it. And their point of view is downright annoying because they don't agree with our point of view. The story is told of two Quakers who were chatting One Quaker said to the other, you know, sometimes I think that everyone in the world is a bit off except for me and thee, and sometimes I wonder about thee. (laughs) Comedian Meryl Marco once observed, it's just like magic. When you live all by yourself, all your annoying habits just disappear. (laughs) There's a price tag on that though, right? So Paul opens the application part of this book, this letter, Ephesians 4, verse 1, and he says with an exhortation, therefore, in light of the first three chapters, in light of the doctrine, in light of what God has done, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Here's the principle. When God's people live together in loving unity, Jesus is made visible to a watching world. When God's people live together in loving unity, Jesus is made visible to a watching world. Now, this is the topic sentence for the rest of this book. This really is the topic sentence, walking worthy. The last three chapters of Ephesians show us how we can walk worthy of our calling. And Paul is a prisoner of the Lord. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that he's not a prisoner of Rome. His entire life is under the authority of Jesus Christ, and he's a prisoner of the Lord. And for Paul, the cost of obedience, the cost of following the Lord was persecution and prison, and he was very willing to pay that price of obedience. 
And he, the prisoner of the Lord, who paid a tremendous price for following Christ, says, I implore you to walk worthy. I strongly urge you, the word implore is strongly urge, step by step, day by day, decision by decision, choice by choice, he says, live in loving unity with one another. That is our calling. That's the calling, to live together in loving unity. And he says, walk worthy. And the word worthy is, is it's like a scale. And the scale has two weights, right? One on each side. And the whole purpose of a scale is to weigh things. So on one side of the scale is God's grace that saved us, God's grace that keeps us. That's the gospel. On the other side is our conduct, how we live in light of that grace. And Paul says our daily choices should be in alignment with God's call. They should be consistent with God's call. You've got all this grace on one side. On this side, we need to live according to that grace. Live in light of that. Live with that kind of weight so that they balance. Walk in a way that pleases God. And we know what pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So when we walk by faith... We are pleasing to God, Hebrews 11:6. Walking by faith, trusting him day by day is the way we walk worthy of the grace with which we have been given. And for those of you in this morning's service, you've got a little taste of the price tag that our four parents paid for us to have the Bible in our hands. If you haven't heard that sermon yet, 11 o'clock, you need to be there. So Paul says, walk worthy of the calling. Now, there's actually two calls here. One's a vertical calling and one's a horizontal calling. The vertical calling is our relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with God, and our horizontal calling is our relationships with each other. We have God's call to be saved, right? Romans 8.30, God calls. He says, you be saved. Come to, you who are thirsty, come, drink of the water, whosoever will, come, right? That's the first call. The second call is, you who have been saved, live in loving unity with each other. Live in loving unity with each other. And this is what Paul's actually talking about. He's not talking about the call to be saved. He's assuming you are saved. He says, your call as followers of Jesus is to live with each other in loving unity because of the testimony this provides to the watching world. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you tolerate each other, if you kind of tolerate each other, if you what? Love each other. John 17, 21. This is the great high priestly prayer. Jesus is talking to his father just before the cross and he's praying and he says to his heavenly father that they, my followers, the disciples, that's you and me, may be one, one, even as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us for what purpose? That the world may believe that you sent me. The strongest evidence to the world that Jesus Christ, the leader of the church, is God himself, is when the church loves each other. There is no powerful testimony more powerful testimony other than loving unity inside the church. And unity is such a supernatural testimony because the world absolutely does not have it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. You look in our culture and what do you see? Fragmentation, huge amount of fracturing. The normal course of any human relationship is to separate. You don't have to work at separating your marriage. You just neglect it for a few months and you'll start to separate. That's the nature of human nature because selfishness strangles relationships and we sinful human beings are naturally selfish. Ever since Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel, humans have been busy destroying each other and our culture today, you're just seeing it done on steroids because we now have the technology to do it on kind of a macro level. When Paul uses the word unity, he's not talking about uniformity. Uniformity is outside pressure to conform to a set of rules so that everyone is identical. You know, you wear a uniform so you all look alike. That's not what he's talking about. Unity is a voluntary state. It's an internal state. 
it, it's a state that embraces diversity. The world out there cannot produce unity in diversity. We talk a lot about diversity in our culture and the value of it, and I agree with that. But when we try it without Jesus Christ, what do we get? Conflict, fragmentation, name-calling, all sorts of interesting ungodly behaviors because the world can't produce that unity. It can only demand uniformity. And that's what we have in our culture today. If you agree with me, you are both right and you are righteous. And if you disagree with me, you are both wrong and evil. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's uniformity. Paul's talking about unity, which is a heart-level issue that only can occur through Jesus Christ. Now, there are two errors that occur with unity and division. One error is we are dividing would be, should be uniting. Many churches fracture over frivolous stuff. Frivolous stuff. Personality conflicts, individual preferences, opinions. They're not essentials of the faith. You know, Paul and Barnabas even split over a personality called John Mark. Remember, they disagreed so strongly, they decided they're going to go their separate ways. But they kept the gospel central. They took the gospel to different regions of the, of the, of the Roman Empire. But most church splits are not over major issues. They're over minor stuff. And quite frankly, most of our arguments with people are over things that a year from now, you and I will not even remember what the argument was about. Amen. How many of you know people that have lost relationships over trivial stuff? I get to see the back end after parents die sometimes and leave their estate to their children. And I've seen children lose a relationship over a glass, over a trinket, and just write their siblings off over something that's worth 25 cents. It's minor, but we lose perspective. So the first error is we're dividing when we should be uniting. The second error is we're uniting when we should be dividing. Declaring unity with those who deny the deity of Christ and the truth of the Bible means you're aligning yourself with Satan against God. Because what God says in the Bible is not up for human opinion. God is not looking for a confirmatory vote that the Bible is true. Amen. He wrote it, and whatever comes out of his mouth is truth. Much of ecumenicalism exists today because people are willing to compromise essential doctrines to maintain the facade of oneness. The unity, our unity, and the unity inside the church can only be based on truth. It's imperative to understand that. Unity always has to be built on a foundation of truth. Uh, you know, if, if there's no agreement on the foundation of truth in whatever building you erect on top of that's going to fall down. The Bible says two people can't walk down the road together unless you agree on the direction, right? If you're going to walk with someone down the road, you've got to agree on the direction. Don't look at me like you don't. Did you get the picture? You got it, right? Say yes, right? Okay. The Bible says, Christian, marry another Christian. Because if a Christian marries a non-Christian, you have trouble. You have different destinations and therefore different directions. And there's always tension between the Christian and the non-Christian because one of you is going one way and the other one's going the other way. It's very difficult to make that work. So unity always has to be based on truth. Before Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one, in John 17, he prayed that they would be set apart and made holy by the truth. So we look and say, well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. And how did he define truth? Your word is truth. You carry the truth in your lap. You can read it. It's comprehensible. It's content that is understandable and clear. It's really, really remarkable. And the world looks and says, how do you know you have the truth? Well, God's word is the truth, and it's externally verifiable, and it came from God. The world has problems with truth because truth often divides, but it always clarifies. Truth often divides, but truth always clarifies. Truth can't cohabit with air. Light and darkness can't sleep in the same bed because darkness conceals, but light reveals the truth. 
You know, I've had people say to me, Brad, not everything in this life is black and white. Did anybody say that to you? That's true. But there are things that are black and white. And it's imperative that we know the difference. We can know the truth because God's spirit takes God's word and guides us into the truth. John 16, 13, Jesus promised, but when he, the spirit of truth, this is one of the job descriptions of the Holy Spirit, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, one of the things he'll do, he'll guide you into all the truth. This is remarkable. You have God's word in your lap and you have God himself living in you and us who will guide us into truth so we can know the truth. And on the basis of that truth, we have unity. So Christ reconciled us to God, the vertical relationship, when he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He also reconciled us to each other when he forgave our sins as well. So Paul says, look, in light of what God's done for you, forgiven your sins, all of your sins, he says, I want you now to live up to the position you have in him. I want you to walk worthy of that calling. I want you to live in loving unity with each other. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, it requires a set of attitudes, of fruits of the spirit that reveal themselves in outward actions. Let's look at verse two to three. You walk worthy with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the principle. The ligaments of Christ's love hold his body together and we are commanded to preserve that unity with zeal and humility. The ligaments of Christ's love hold his body together and we are commanded to preserve that unity with zeal and humility. And Paul uses the word all humility. Now, humility is a, literally means lowliness of mind. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of pride. Humility serves others. Humility doesn't serve yourself. Actually, humility is seeing yourself from God's point of view, not from your point of view. Because when we look at ourselves from our point of view, we obviously don't see ourselves accurately. Romans 12 says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. Well, that agrees with God's judgment, right? Humility depends on seeing yourself from God's point of view and seeing others from God's point of view. Unity not only depends on truth, unity depends on humility. Philippians 2, 3. I love this verse. But when I try to apply it, I fall on my face. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This sounds like servanthood, doesn't it? That's what's required for unity to take place. That's what's required for family relationships to take place. It's a willingness, it's a desire to regard each other as more important than yourself so that you will serve them and not yourselves. Humility is number one. Number two is gentleness. Gentleness, another word for that is meekness, which means power under control. Power under control. It means emotional self-control. In our culture today, on social media, you do not see a lot of emotional self-control. Isn't that correct? People say things that you think to yourself, are they in their right mind? Assuming they have a right mind to be in, right? Without the Holy Spirit, we are inherently self-centered. We are not meek. We are arrogant. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, one of them is gentleness, power under control, submission to the will of God. Now in the Greek, meekness was used to describe a soothing medicine a colt that had been broken, or a soft wind, meek. All three of them describe power under control. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertion, and we live in a very self-centered culture. See, meekness is a virtue of the strong, not the weak. Years ago, George H.W. Bush, one, said that we should be a kinder and gentler nation 
For those of you who were alive then, how many of you remember how that went over? Not well. No nation wants to be gentler. We all want to be big and bad, large and in charge. And yet, a gentleman is not a weak man. A gentleman is someone who could exercise force to get his own way, but chooses not to for the benefit of those he serves. All Christians should be gentle, should be meek, because they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. See, you say power under control. Well, our power needs to be under his control. And actually, it's his power that allows us to do anything in the first place. So humility, meekness, and he says patience. This is long-suffering. This is enduring under affliction. It means someone who bears up under difficult circumstances, difficult people, and submits to God's will. Patience waits. On God. Abraham was promised that he was going to have a son, he and Sarah, and he waited and she waited 25 years. That's a bit while to wait after the promise. God told Noah to build an ark. Took Noah and his family 120 years to build the ark because God promised rain and no one had ever seen rain. It had never rained. Moses endured 40 years of affliction with God's people in the wilderness. Patience waits on God, doesn't get ahead of God. The Greek here is macrothumia, macro. You know what macro is, big, long, thumia is temperature. So a patient person, a macrothumia person has a long fuse, has a high boiling point, bears up under insult and injury without complaining or retaliating. Siapata is someone with a short fuse. Do you have anybody in your life with a short fuse? I mean, you got to be on eggshells all the time because they can just blow very, very quickly. They have no emotional self-control. Here's my favorite definition of patience. I borrowed it, but I wished I'd have written it. Patience is gracious in the presence of fools. And many of you have had a lot of practice this week being patient because you've been surrounded by fools. Correct? Of course, your neighbors are saying that about you. <laughs> Getting along is not easy. This business about loving unity requires character traits that can only come from God. He says showing tolerance. The word tolerance here is not just what we call politically correct tolerance, it literally means forbearing love. And forbearing love means literally to suppress with silence or to throw a blanket over. Forbearing love throws a blanket over wrong. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know how you know if you have this or not? When you tell someone your love, your spouse, your friend, your kids, your neighbors, whatever, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. This will be the outcome. And they do it anyway. And the outcome happens. And you want to go over and say, don't you? I told you so. And you don't. Because love throws a blanket over their folly, their sin. That's what he's talking about, forbearing love. If you're a spouse, if you have children, grandchildren, if you have friends, the way you keep the relationship going, the way you keep love fervent is covering those sins, letting them go. Forbearing love suffers long and is kind. It's not a grit your teeth, I got to put up with you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you. That requires supernatural power, the Holy Spirit. It means bearing with another shortcomings in love. And he says, he's talking about love. Now in the Bible, there are three kinds of love mentioned, primarily three. Eros, 
Phileo, agape. These are all Greek terms. Eros is erotic love. It's sexual love. It's sensual love. And it's love that is glorified in our culture. When people talk about, I'm in love, or, or what they mean is I'm in heat. That's essentially what, because <laughs> this is what they're talking about. They're talking about erotic attraction. I'm just, we're being real here, right? That's just how the culture operates, right? It's flesh. It's all about what pleases me. Erotic love in our culture is a love that takes, not a love that gives. Phileo means brotherly love, and it's where we get the name of our city, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love, right? Yeah. Phileo love is reciprocal love. It gives and it takes. It's friendship. You bring this to the table, I bring this to the table. You do this, I'll do that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. So phileo love is reciprocal. It gives and takes. Agape is God's love. It is unconditional love and it gives. It's completely selfless. So eros takes, phileo gives and takes, agape gives and gives and gives and gives. It's unconditional love because it seeks the other person's highest good regardless of cost. Agape is never about me. It's always about you. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Even though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through, we through his poverty might become rich. That's sacrificial love. And that's Jesus' love. And that's the love that's required to live together in unity. He says, furthermore, you have to be diligent at it. And the word there is endeavor. It, it, it literally means to work hard at it and to be in a hurry to complete it. Another word for that word diligent is zeal. It means I'm going to put hard effort into getting this job done and I'm urgent about getting it done. So do it and do it now. That's what he says. Don't let disunity fester. If you let issues fester in your relationship, how many of you heard the phrase time heals all wounds. That only works if you have dementia. <laughs> yeah. Time does not heal all wounds. Time wounds all heals. Right? You know how that works. What wounds, what heals all wounds is forgiveness. Right? Paul says, I want you to pursue peace. I want you to value it. Psalm 34, 14. Depart from evil. That's a decision to leave evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Go after it. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Value peaceful relationships enough to go after it, to chase it down. Be as relentless in pursuing peace in your relationships as a predator is in pursuing their prey for lunch. You ever watch one of these movies, you see a, you see a cheetah run down a gazelle? I'm telling you they're pursuing that gazelle because they're hungry. He says, pursue peace with that same relentless focus. I know you're not cheetahs, but let me try this one on you. <laughs> Be as passionate about peace as you were the first time you fell in love. For some of you, that's a long time ago. That's what you think about. You pursued that person because you were in love with them. Pursue peace the same way. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, Amen. not the peace breakers. Starting a fight is easy. We can start a fight without even thinking about it. Making peace is hard work. Paul says, be diligent about making peace. And we pursue peace in order to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. See, you and I don't create unity. God already has created unity when he forgave us of our sins. He's created that. We are to preserve that unity. And we're not talking about organizational uniformity. The unity of the Spirit is really organic. He grows it inside of us. He shapes us like Jesus as we grow in maturity. As we grow in maturity in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes our hearts and gives us the ability to love people who are very different from us. This is not natural human behavior. Living together in loving unity is not natural. It is supernatural. That's why it's so incredibly powerful when the world sees it, because it's so foreign. It's not human nature to get along. 
It's non-human nature to love each other. It's non-human nature to serve each other and be humble and forbearing. That's not normal. That's super normal. That's Holy Spirit normal. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. See, you and I all have the same spirit who binds us together. This word, the bond of peace, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about a belt. What is the purpose of a belt? To hold your pants up, right? It kind of cinches everything in. And back in the day when they wore a robe, they wore a belt. It kind of held everything together. Now, the other word for bond is ligament. Ligament. Have you ever looked at the structure of the human body? Ligaments connect bones with bones. Tendons connect bones to muscles, right? A tendon connects a bone to a muscle. A ligament connects bone to bone. If your ligaments let go, the bones have nothing to hold them together and the structure falls down. Ligaments don't get a lot of blood flow. So if you tear a ligament, that's a six-month process to heal. That's a big deal. Sometimes you actually have to staple those things together. So ligaments that fasten our bones together, they help us stand up and structure. And the, what keeps the body of Christ bound together is the ligaments of his love. That's the word picture. Ligaments that bind bone to bone together. We are part of the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit holds the body of Christ together through those ligaments of love. Colossians 3.14 says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect ligament of unity. Perfect bond of unity. Perfect belt of unity. See, the love of Jesus is the ligaments that holds us together. You and I are Christ's body, right? We are his hands, his arms, his feet, his back, his neck. And what holds us together is Jesus' love. And we're commanded to preserve that peace, that loving unity, by putting on love. Like you put on a coat, you put it on and you wear it. Now you can take that coat off too, right? You can put that loving coat off and put the coat of selfishness on and behave like you normally do without Christ and bad things occur. So he says, put on love every morning, put on love. The source of this unity is not us, it's God. Verse 4 to 6, which we're going to open right now, gives us seven causes of that unity. Where does it come from? And it's going to involve all three members of the Trinity. All three members of the Trinity. You know, the truth is we often feel closest to people we have the most in common with, correct? The people we have the most in common with, we're, it's easy to identify with them. It's easy to feel one with them. We have a lot in common with them, but they like what we like. Paul makes a list here in verses four to six of some of the things that Christians have in common and they all come from God. Let's look at them. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the principle. The source of loving unity in the church is our common connection with God through faith in Christ. The source of loving unity in the church is our common connection with God through faith in Christ. A.W. Tozer once wrote, has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically in tune with each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together in church, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they ever to become, quote, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer unity with each other. What we have most in common is Jesus. Verse 4 is all about the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are involved in the source of our unity. Verse 4 says, there is one body. He's talking about the body of Christ. The church, the body of Christ, is the universal community of believers in Christ Jesus. Regardless of denomination, language, temperament, location, culture, gender, economic status, regardless of all that external stuff, 
everyone equally belongs to the one body of Christ. We talked about that last time. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, doesn't matter. You belong equal to the body of Christ. Now, different peoples are at different levels of maturity, but all true believers in Jesus are united because they belong to the one body of Christ. We all belong to the universal body of Christ. Of course, we also should belong to a local body. We not only belong, what we have in common is one body, we also have the same spirit, one spirit. The same Holy Spirit dwells in you that dwells in me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God within your body. So one of the reasons we live in unity is because we have what? The Holy Spirit in common, the same Holy Spirit. So we have the family of God in common, we have the Spirit of God in common, and we have the one hope of calling in common. And you know what our hope of our calling is? Heaven. Heaven. We all have heaven to look forward to. Has it ever occurred to you that every single one of us are going to live together forever? A lot closer than we live together now. So we probably should learn how to get along down here. Because up there, you're going to be a lot closer than you are down here. See, our hope of heaven is certain because God's already given us a down payment on heaven. You know when you buy a house, you put a down payment down? That's earnest money. It just says... I promise I'm going to buy this house and pay it off in full. And to prove it, I'm going to used to put Kyle right, 20% down, then 10% down. Now, sometimes you can buy a house with no money down. But most of the time, down payment. So the Holy Spirit is our down payment that guarantees our place in heaven. The other word for that is an engagement ring. A down payment on a marriage is an engagement ring. When you give your bride an engagement ring, you're promising that marriage is coming. And the Holy Spirit inside us is God's promise that someday we'll see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. So in this life, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside each of us. And when the church loves each other with Jesus' love, when the church really loves each other with Jesus' love, and we really live together in unity, you know what that's called? A little taste of heaven on earth. And the world longs for that because it's not out there. That's why when we live together and love each other as the body of Christ, it is such powerful testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ. So verse 5 switches from the Holy Spirit to Jesus God's Son. We have one Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, the head of his church who died for us, lives for us, one day is going to come for us. There's only one Savior. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we have the same Lord. We have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. What we have most in common is Jesus Christ. On Thursday, March 19th, 2019, 2015, about 50 members of Valley Baptist Church were near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethsaida. Right next door to the Pool of Bethsaida is St. Anne's Catholic Church. And it has these amazing acoustics. And we wanted to sing in there, but there was a whole line of other churches, people wanting to sing in there as well. Have to wait your turn. So we're in line, and there's a church directly in front of us from Nigeria, probably 30, 35. And they are underneath the dome, and they're singing, How Great Thou Art. And the sound just resonated. I mean, it was your shower on steroids. It, it, you know, it made, it made all of us sound incredibly musical, unbelievable. So they began to leave. We moved under the dome, and we invited them to join our circle and singing Amazing Grace. So we have a church from Nigeria, a church from the Central Valley. We're singing Amazing Grace Under the Dome, and the music is glorious. And we're singing to our King Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is bringing our hearts together like you can't believe, and we're hugging and crying and singing. And I thought, this is a little taste of what oneness in the body of Christ is all about. And I never saw them before, and I will never see them again until... We get to heaven. But the Lord made us one, and what we have in common 
is King Jesus. And that's all we need. We have one faith. We share the truth of God's word. The one faith that's once delivered for all of the saints. We have one baptism. For one by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And we have one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. There is only one God. Israel's great confession in Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and this God is characterized as our Father. And this Father is over all. In other words, all believers in him, in his Son, are members of his family. Have you ever thought it interesting that we say in the Lord's Prayer, it starts with the word, Our Father, not My Father. We share this Father because we are family. So you look at the things we have in common. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? One spirit, one body, one hope, one Father. We have a phenomenal amount of things in common. Everything that matters, we have in common. We're going to the same destination. God is the source of our unity, and we preserve that unity when we use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here's the principle. At salvation, Jesus graciously gives to each of us a specific ability to serve God and he expects us to use it. At salvation, Jesus graciously gives us a specific ability to serve God, and he expects us to use it. And he says, each one, every single member of God's family, of course, has been saved by grace, but at salvation, Jesus Christ, God gives each, each family member at least one spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift that you have and I have, because we all have different gifts, is a divinely empowered ability. It's a supernatural ability from the Holy Spirit that he gave to you in order to serve and build up the church. And it says God measured it out to you. He literally knew you before the creation and measured out to you the exact ability that he wants you to have. Ephesians 2.10 says he gave you the good works to do. So you have a job description already written down from before you were born. And he gave you the gifts that you need in order to complete it. He says, now I want you to use it. I want you to use that ability that I gave you to accomplish the purpose that I I've given you to do. And God knows exactly where each person's ability fits into the church at large and what role we're supposed to play. 1 Corinthians 12 says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. The Holy Spirit gives all the gifts. And there are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord Jesus. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one was given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the whole point that you have a spiritual gift is to serve the body, each other. That's the point of a family. You know, you've got mom and dad and children in a family. Mom has a role, dad has a role, children have a role. What's the whole point? For the good of the family, not the good of myself. We serve each other in the family. We serve each other in the family of God. You know, we didn't deserve the spiritual gift we have. We didn't earn it, but Jesus expects us to use it. Remember the parable of the talents? Jesus tells a parable and he says, man, when we end a journey, a master, and he gave three of his servants responsibilities. He gave one five talents, he gave one three talents, he gave one talent, and he said, do business while I'm gone. In other words, multiply this talent, multiply this resource, grow it. He came back after a long period of time, and the one with five talents says, Lord, look, I've taken five talents and I've doubled them. I made 10. He says, well done. Person with three talents says, Lord, I took three talents, doubled them to six. I've been busy while you were gone. We've been, we've been working. There's a lot of stuff going on. I doubled them up. Well done, good faithful servant. And the one that began one talent, what did that servant do with it? Buried it in the ground. Did nothing with it. And what did the master say? You wicked, lazy slave. Whoa, that's pretty harsh. Do you think God expects growth from what he's given you? Of course. So the question is, how are we doing? 
with what he's given us. Are we exercising it? Or is it in the ground? Because we're too busy watching reruns or whatever. God expects us to use and multiply the gifts he's given us. Next, in verse 8 through 10, and I'm going to briefly talk about this, not long. He, Paul says how Christ got the right to give, give gifts. What right did Christ have to give gifts to the member of his family? Verse 8, it says, Therefore, it says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, Paul is quoting Psalm 68. Here's the word picture. Psalm 68 describes the king of Israel who comes back to Jerusalem from a victory over an enemy. So this is a picture of a victorious king. Now, Jerusalem is on top of Mount Zion, which is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So in order to enter the city, you have to walk uphill 2,500 feet, right? The conquering king of, of, of Israel would ride into Jerusalem on a war horse with his army and following the army were the spoils of war, you know, the treasures that he had captured, the prisoners that he had seized as a result of his victory. But also many, many times fellow Israelites had been imprisoned by foreign powers as a result of previous wars, and this king would go and liberate those Israelite prisoners. So they would follow the king's procession up the hill into Jerusalem. So you have prisoners of war from the enemy, you have treasure, right, spoils, and you have liberated captive Israelites that he freed. It's a scene of great triumph and great victory. And this victorious king received gifts. By the way, there's nothing like a big military victory to make a lot of friends. I mean, there's people that'll bring you a lot of gifts when they realize you got military power. But the king also would give gifts, right, to his followers. He'd share the booty, if you will. So the picture here is of Jesus Christ, the conquering king, who won a great victory over Satan, sin, and death at the cross, and he has freed the slaves of Satan, which is us, right? He's freed us, and he's adopted us into his family, his body, his army. Following that, Christ ascended into heaven, right? Just like the king going up the hill in Jerusalem, and it says he gave gifts to his church. He's spiritual gifts. By the way, the greatest gift you have from God is what? Salvation, bar none. The fact that you get to go to heaven forever, no greater gift. Number two, at salvation, you immediately get the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself lives inside you. You think that's a big gift? Oh, huge. You have divine ability right there. Number three, the Holy Spirit gives you a spiritual gift, a divine ability. We're going to talk about this next week. A divine ability to serve. And after Christ redeems you from sin, gives you the divine ability to serve, he gives you back to the church as a gift in order to build up the body. So God saved us, gave us the Holy Spirit, gave us divine abilities, and he says, I'm giving you back to your family, back to my family to build up the body. You get the picture? So the body of Christ needs you to do the role that he called you to do in order to build up his family. We have, you have a role in his church. You are a gift from God to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus has the ability to do this, has the right to do this, because Ephesians 1.20 says, when he, God the Father, raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God the Father, put all things under subjection, his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We have been called to live in unity with one another, to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords who rules and reigns over all things for all eternity. There is no higher calling. Let's review. Number one, 
When God's people live together in loving unity, Jesus is made visible to a watching world. By the way, I can see some of you say, I'm going to try harder to love that schmuck, <laughs> that in-law of mine. Forget about it. You don't have the juice it takes to make it happen. You don't. If you want to learn to love them, submit to the Lord first. Say, Lord, I can't love this person. They're an idiot. You're going to have to teach me to love them. I need your spiritual power. I need you to teach me to love them humbly, gently, with forbearance. That's divine work of God to teach you to love the unlovely. Of course, they're praying the same prayer about you, right? Understand. When we do that, the world sees Jesus. And it's the strongest witness ever. Number two, the ligaments of Christ's love hold his body together. And we are commanded to preserve that unity with both zeal and humility. Zeal, get it done, get it done now. And humility, which says, Lord, I am a servant like you're a servant. Not arrogantly. Number three, the source of loving unity in the church is our common connection with God through faith in Christ. Loving each other is not easy. It requires sacrifice. Jesus Christ is our model, and he's also our power source. And lastly, at salvation, Jesus graciously gives each of us the spiritual ability to serve God, and he expects us to use it. So if you're not serving and you are sitting, you ought to be really uncomfortable about now. You ought to be sitting on a pitchfork all the way up your spinal column saying, I need to get off my blessed assurance and be serving the Lord wherever he called me to do. And that doesn't mean down here at church. It may mean changing diapers. That's serving Jesus. If that's what he's called you to do, then do it. It may mean changing your parents' diapers. That's called serving Jesus, the elderly parents. I don't know what service you're called to do, but you are called in the name of Jesus to serve his body. And if you don't know, ask him. He will show you. Okay? Next week, Lord willing, we'll stay in Ephesians 4. Go through the next probably 12, 13 verses, so please read ahead. Now that you know, do. I do love you all very much. It's a privilege to be part of the Mana family. You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us, and now that you know, do.